privilege to have all of you here this afternoon as we continue to study God's Word together. And if you would turn to the book of Matthew, we have been in Matthew's Gospel now since mid-October. And if you would look with me in chapter 5 and beginning in verse 17. Jesus is speaking, it is the Sermon on the Mount, and this is what he is preaching. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of of heaven. Well, Father, this is your word that we joyfully, gladly, thankfully submit ourselves to this afternoon. Lord, not just the reading of your word, not just the preaching of your word, but the effect of your word upon our lives that we might do as we just read and give glory to you as disciples of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we invite you now to come and to bring life to your word and to your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now starting in Matthew 1, if you remember, the word fulfills or fulfillment appears often, particularly in the first four chapters, in, in 1.22, in chapter 2, verse 15, and. 2.17 and 2.23 and 3.15 and 4.14, all to describe the coming of Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And Matthew makes it clear Jesus has come in fulfillment of God's covenant promise to redeem and to rescue and to set free and to restore men and women from their historic oppression under sin. But here in 5.17 through 20, a new understanding of, of fulfillment is explained to those listening to Jesus on the hillside. Jesus' words, I have come to fulfill the scriptures, stuns his audience. His disciples believed at first that Jesus had overcome to to, had come to overthrow their, their oppressors. And it wasn't only Roman rule that burdened these men and women. The re religious rulers, the, the scribes and the Pharisees placed on them crushing demands, crushing burdens, and abolishing the law and the prophets, which as you read through, when, when Jesus is speaking of the law and the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, the Word of God. So abolishing the law and the prophets, which actually the, the people were hoping maybe that these burdens, these traditions and these, these demands that the scribes and the Pharisees put upon the people would be abolished, 
This is why Jesus commands, says what he says here, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so they thought Jesus is coming at first. It would be life-changing. We wouldn't live under the demands that these religious leaders are, are placing upon our lives. This is what the others that are sitting there listening, this is what the disciples had hoped for. Now the scribes and Pharisees would have thought the opposite. They would have been, they would have been bothered by what Jesus is saying here. Did he come to abolish God's law? That's what they would have thought because Jesus in the Beatitudes is giving a, a way of life that is dramatically different than what they had been living. And so they're wondering, these scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders who are listening, who are sitting on the hillside, who are listening to Christ's sermon, they are wondering, did, is he abolishing the scriptures, the holy word of God? And so Jesus is making it clear, he did not come to do this. He did not come to, to undo what the scribes and the Pharisees hold so dear. Now, we need to understand, to understand this passage, who the scribes and Pharisees are, because they play a, a major role, not just in what we're reading this afternoon, but throughout Matthew's gospel. We will, we will see the role that they play again and again. Now, the scribes were, were the teachers and the official expositors of the Old Testament, of God's law. They, they sought to preserve the law from any mistakes. So, as you read here, not an iota or not a dot. If, if even one tiny symbol was off in, in the scriptures when they were being recorded, that they could change the, the meaning of, an, of a word or an entire sentence. And so, they were there wisely, rightly, to preserve God's, God's law, that no mistakes would be made. Their job was also, the scribes, their job was also to read the law of God and, and to apply it to their lives and to the lives of the people, as Ezra did in Nehemiah 8. But over time, these scribes created certain traditions as well to express their commitment to the law, and, and they became equal to the law. And, and these traditions placed a great burden on the people, and they suffered under this legalistic rule, these traditions that far exceeded God's Word, that far exceeded the Scriptures. Now, the Pharisees were a religious sect in Judaism, Pharisee literally means separated one, and this is the, the group who took the teachings of the scribes and rigorously sought to apply them not only to their own lives, but to the lives of everyone around them. These were, these were the men who would, would dress in a, a very specific way to prove how righteous they were. Their, their clothing was a declaration of, this is how godly I am. This, is, this shows who, how righteous I am. And the scribes' traditions, as well as the Pharisees, now this, this all came upon the people of God, the, uh, the burden. And, and these, are the, these are the kinds of traditions that we have to be careful with in our own time, where we can equate the way we dress with righteousness, or the things we eat or don't eat, the things we drink or don't drink, the things we do or don't do. We can equate them, or if we homeschool or don't homeschool, or just a myriad of things where humans can create traditions, they can create laws and rules that, that are added to the Word of God and place a burden on people. And that's what has been happening here in 
Matthew's gospel. These, these religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, they misused the law that was given to them by God, the, the very law that was meant to display God's wonderful character. And so in the rest of the chapter, Jesus, as we see in starting in verse 21, beginning next week, we're, we see this Jesus giving us an exposition of what true spiritual life is all about, what true spiritual beauty is all about by stripping away all the man-made regulations, all the man-made legalistic traditions, and showing us, showing these, these folks that are sitting on the hillside the true law. And, showing, and Jesus is showing himself and what, what his teaching really means. Jesus does this in contrast to the scribes and Pharisees who depended upon their obedience to the Scripture and depended upon their traditions to establish their righteousness before God and man. They, they were about establishing their religiosity in front of others. They, they took great comfort in their external righteousness, the clothes they wore, the things they did, the, the things they said. They would, they would as we re later read in Matthew 5, you know, they would stand on the street corners and pray. Or Matthew 6, they'd stand on the street corners and pray. Or they would, they would talk about fasting publicly. Or they would show their giving publicly as a way of proving their righteousness, proving their holiness, their standing before God. They took great comfort in that. But soon, they would learn how tragically mistaken they were in living that kind of life. And here in 5.17, Matthew makes a significant shift in his use of the word fulfills. He doesn't use to, the word to describe the fulfillment of Jesus' coming, but who Jesus is. Only God could fulfill the law and the prophets. That statement right there, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, is a subtle declaration by Jesus saying, I am God. Only I alone can fulfill the word of God. These are the very words of God. These are the words spoken by God, the scriptures, and I, I, am, I have come to fulfill them, and only God can fulfill them. That is, that is a subtle but loud declaration of Jesus stating who he is. Now, we must remember that this is called the Sermon on the mount. And so what we are reading here is a sermon. And a sermon is meant to exposit and expound and it is meant to is meant to evoke emotions. It's meant to evoke emotions. It's meant to draw you into God's love. It's meant to excite you about the truth of God's word. It's meant to challenge you. It's, it's meant to convict you or admonish you or rebuke you. And so there is emotion that, that a sermon is, is intending to, to evoke from you. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. And the first way, in the first point he does, he, he makes an astonishing claim. He is claiming at this moment, which astonishes all that are listening, he is the Word of God. He is the unchanging, eternal, perfect, and righteous judge who, who is the Word of God. He fulfills the Word because He is the Word. 
And that is an astonishing statement, especially to the scribes and Pharisees. But the, the other, his disciples were also, they were versed in God's word. They knew God's word. And so Jesus here in verse 17, he's not con, con, contradicting the law, but fulfilling it in his own person. He, he's bringing to completion the meaning of the law of God. The Old, now listen, the Old Testament, the Old Testament cannot rightly be interpreted until we understand that it's been fulfilled in Christ. That we see Christ in every page of the Old Testament. Every Old Testament text must be viewed in light of his, his coming and, his, and who he is and the work that he has done. He is, Jesus is the inerrant expositor. He's the one who teaches the word and now tells everyone what the Old Testament, God's Word, is really about. This is an, it's an astonishing claim that He is the absolute fulfillment. He's the perfect fulfillment. He's the embodiment of God's greatest promises, which to the scribes and Pharisees, that's blasphemous. That's heretical. How, how can this man, standing on a hillside, say He is God? He is the Word of God. But he is. And just like on Mount Sinai, when God spoke his word through Moses, Jesus on this Galilean hillside speaks God's word because he is God's word. And he speaks it through himself. That, that is a claim that astonishes all who are listening. He is saying, and he, and he says right here, he says, for truly I say to you, When God speaks, the world is created. When God speaks, life is formed. When God speaks, everything is transformed. And here, Jesus is speaking. He says, I am saying to you, it is my role to bring into being that which the law and the prophets have pointed to. And I am carrying this law into an era of new fulfillment. The law and the prophets are not abolished. Oh no, just the opposite. They are still the authoritative word of God. But their role will no longer be the same now that I have come. Because I am the word made flesh. He explains what obedience will involve for his disciples. He, he rejects the scribes and the Pharisees' demands for external obedience. His, his purpose wasn't to change or annul the law, but to reveal the full depth and meaning of God's Word. And it's when we, we open up the Bible and we, we read the New Testament and the Old Testament as well, when we read the full Word of God, listen, it changes us, it transforms us. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to transform. He came to change. And so declaring that He came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, that's life-transforming. That's life-changing for these people. He explains what that, that obedience is going to involve for his disciples, and, and, and he, he will tell us that as we read further in, in, in Matthew 5, 21, and we begin to read these six different examples, which really are an exposition of what he's saying here. And we'll begin that next week. But he is, he is beginning to open up the truth 
of God's word to these people. Now here's a challenging question for us. If Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, which, is, which are the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, but to fulfill the Old Testament, why are the food laws abolished? Which Jesus speaks about in Mark 7, 19. Or why do the New Testament writers insist that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is no longer necessary, as we read about in Hebrews 9, 12, where the writer of Hebrews says he entered once, once, for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Because Hebrews shows Christians that the daily sacrifice of an animal and its shed blood is no longer necessary because the perfect one and the eternal one, the eternal sacrifice, has been offered by Christ once for all. So, so, so how, how do they do that? It's not abolishing the law of God. I mean, under Paul and Peter's guidance, the New Testament church put aside the Old Testament food law as no longer binding on Christians, as we read in Acts and Romans. How is that possible? I'm really glad it's possible because I love lobster. And that was, that was taboo in the, in the, in the laws. Now, just so you're aware, too, when Jesus is talking about the law and the prophets, there are a total of 613 laws that we see in the Old Testament. I got online and I looked. Just Montgomery County alone, there are 210 pages of laws just for Montgomery County. God's laws are not burdensome. God's truth is not burdensome. More than 10,000 laws in, in one county alone, and God only gives us 613. And yet, here we see that, that even the laws of the Old Testament, now that Christ has come and have fulfilled them, no longer are applicable to us. It's because Jesus is the culmination and ultimate fulfillment of the law. His life and his death and his resurrection, his suffering, his shed blood, his all that he has done has satisfied the law of God once and for all. He was and is the perfect lamb whose blood covered all our sins and now unites us eternally to himself. We don't have to make blood sacrifices anymore. Christ has done it once and for all. We don't have to follow certain laws to remain pure before God so we can go into his presence. Christ's blood has covered us and we are clothed in his righteousness and we can be with him. We can enter into the holy place to find mercy and grace and help in time of need, all because of the blood of Christ. He has fulfilled the law and it's the best fulfillment we could ever imagine. And he goes on in verse 18. That's just verse 17. He goes on in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. This just continues to, to astonish them. He says, truly I say to you, my word will endure for all time until I bring things to completion. Not one iota of the law will pass away until all 
God's plans. My plans have been fulfilled. Then I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth. One day the old will pass away and an amazing and mighty rebirth of the universe will take place. And you will be a part of that. Then time as you know it will cease. And this is what God is promising us today. Not just these men and women who are sitting on a hillside in Galilee. He is promising us today there is a new heaven and a new earth coming. Time will cease as we know it because God's written law will no longer be needed. We will not need to read the word of God because we will be hearing God speak to us because we will be in the presence of God. And listen, the, the day that follows the first 10,000 years that we are in heaven will only be the beginning of eternity with God. That is fulfillment, brothers and sisters. And until then, the law will be as enduring as the universe. And then in 519, he, he brings a warning. The, the phrase, the least of these commandments, he says in, in verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The, the, the phrase, the least of these commandments, reflects a typical Jewish thinking that they treated certain laws differently and applied them differently and they taught others to do the same they they and here's the thing the scribes and the pharisees they they put the weight of the law upon the people and they would they would heighten the the least of the laws or they would encourage people to ignore certain laws or they would but what they would do and what jesus is after here is that they would ignore they would ignore the great importance of mercy and love and forgiveness and truth. They would look great on the outside, but Jesus is after what is going on on the inside. And he's telling, he's telling these people what, what basically the Pharisees and scribes have taught you is the law that they've spoken from Scripture is true, but the way they've applied it and the way they want you to live it is wrong. And he doesn't, he doesn't want his disciples, he says, you know, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom, but whoever teaches them, does them and teaches them will be called great. In other words, it's not just what you teach, it's also what you do. So as my disciples, this is how I want you to live. And, and he's making it clear, these are people who are in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what this has to do with possible rewards in heaven is not clear. You could make a case, this is also referring to rewards in heaven, but I don't know of a hierarchy in heaven. I mean, later in Matthew, you read about the, the parable where, where you know, the, the workers get hired at the beginning of the day, and then they get hired at the end of the day, and the, the last shall be first. And so I, I'm, I'm not real clear on, on how best rewards would apply here, but I am clear about this. What we teach others by our lives and by our words and how we expound the word of God to others is critical to the way we live and the way we live together. 
We teach all the time. It's not just Devin and I, which we, we are clear. Devin and I are very clear. Scripture, James tells us that we live under a stricter judgment for teaching God's Word in this, in this venue. But every person in this room who is a believer, who follows Christ and reads God's Word, is a teacher of God's Word. You parents, you teach your children. Fathers, you, you teach your children God's Word. Moms, you teach your children God's Word. Pa husband and wife, you teach one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you, you are expounding God's Word to one another by the way you live, by the examples that you give. And so that is what Jesus is after here. People read God's Word in your life. You may not say anything, and God will be, you'll be showing who God is by the way you live, the way you act. And then it becomes even more clear by the things you say. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this is another astonishing claim that Jesus makes here. Because, you see, the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the scribes were, they had it all externally. But in their heart, they, they rejected God's law. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier, weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You got it on the outside, but you are dead on the inside. You are a whitewashed tomb. You look clean outwardly, but you are dead and filthy inwardly. And Jesus is saying in his sermon that is meant to evoke emotions from them, I've come to fulfill the law, but this is what the law is. It is, it, is, it is justice, and it is mercy, and it is faithfulness. It is not just what you wear and how you act, what you look like on the outside. Treating the law wrongly means a lowly position in God's kingdom. The, the opposite is true for those who obey and teach God, others to obey God's word. Although both, like I said, are still in the kingdom, their rewards are, are not the same. And, and so let us, let us as a church, let us as individuals make sure that, that the application, the, the proclamation of God's word in our lives has an impact upon others that is according to God's word. That is, not just on the outside, but on the inside. That we are speaking from truth in our hearts. Now, not perfection, but truth. So, verses 17 through 19, you, you, you've got to be thinking, if I'm sitting on this hillside and this sermon is being preached, these are astonishing words. But secondly, Jesus doesn't stop there. Look at verse 20. Now, now he's, he's being very pointed, which, listen, pastors are loath to do this. You never want to preach to particular individuals in a, in a Sunday meeting. It's wrong. It, it's really not something you, we, we, I do, and I know Devin doesn't do. We, we don't think about who we should preach to 
subtly on a Sunday morning. But here in this sermon, Jesus is doing exactly that. In verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees who are standing right there, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is an appalling claim. Not only does Jesus make an astonishing claim about being the fulfillment of God's word, now he makes this appalling claim. The scribes and Pharisees are certainly devastated by what Jesus says about the law, which they thought they had perfected. They, they believed in, that they themselves were the perfection of God's law. He tells them, and he tells us, that the righteousness he demands far surpasses anything they are, they are capable of achieving. Christ's way is far more challenging and demanding as well as rewarding than any man-made legalistic system can ever be. Here, he introduces a group of individuals who are not in the kingdom of heaven. He is making it clear, scribes and Pharisees, you are not in the kingdom of heaven. And, and here, these men were considered the model of righteousness, the highest model of righteousness imaginable in Judaism. And he challenges their entire approach, their entire way of life in front of all these people. And what he is saying here is they are the antithesis. Again, Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You've neglected the matters, the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus is establishing a new covenant now where God's law is internal. It begins internally, not externally. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. So the law is not abolished. We obey the law of God, but it begins inwardly, not outwardly. It begins with God regenerating our hearts. And if you are sitting here today and your heart has not yet been born again. You have not been regenerated. God, God is saying here, he will give you a new heart. He will give you a heart of flesh and take away your heart of stone if you trust in him. And then you can live from the internal first and then the external. Then you can obey his statutes, walk in them, and follow the, the law of God, the rules of God. And what do you think this, the ordinary Jewish person sitting in this crowd thinks about the scribes and Pharisees? I mean, they, they saw them as gods. They, they considered them the holiest men of all, the embodiment of, of what religion should be. They, these men were supposed to be the spiritual leaders who would help them draw near to God. But Jesus exposes who they really are. And his main point in this passage is this. Christian discipleship to be a follower of Christ. And he's speaking not just to the, the crowds now, he's speaking to us. His main point here is Christian discipleship requires a greater righteousness than these men can ever produce. It requires a righteousness that we could never produce. His, his words devastate these two groups. If these religious leaders can't get into heaven, who can? 
If you remember in Luke 18, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, and he goes, begins going through the first five of the Ten Commandments. And the, the young man interrupts him and says, all I've done these from my youth. And Jesus says, well, okay, tell you what, go and sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow after me. And it says that the young man turned away very sad, for he was very rich, and he left. And his disciples are amazed. And Jesus says to them, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples look at him and say, well, then, then who can be saved? If a rich man can't be saved, how can, how can I be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible for man is possible for God. And then the next story over, you see Zacchaeus, this rich tax collector, coming into the kingdom of heaven. You see the camel going through the eye of the needle. And here, Jesus is saying the same thing. These religious leaders, they can't get into heaven, not by their righteousness, but the, you, and you will see as he goes on in the rest of this chapter what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven and the righteousness that Christ delivers. Jesus, Jesus is going after the motives of the heart. If you read in 6.1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. And you get the point. You can't live your Christian life on the outside to impress others when there's actually nothing going on in the inside. These men were more interested in having a reputation of being spiritual than actually having a true spirituality through the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's where our spirituality comes, brothers and sisters through Christ's saving work in our lives, through the ongoing work of the gospel, through the work of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, who is given to us as a guarantee that we are born again and who is working to sanctify us, transforming us more into the image of Christ day after day. They totally missed the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These, these scribes and Pharisees, they trusted in their self-righteousness rather than in Christ's righteousness. So what are you trusting in today? Are there areas in your life where you, you find a trust in your own goodness or your own self-righteousness rather than Christ's? Do you trust in, I'm a good person. I, I, I serve. I give. I attend on Sundays. I read my Bible. Now listen, as a believer, the spiritual life we pursue that's important, but we must never pursue these spiritual things in our lives to ease our conscience because we feel guilty for not doing them. And we can't do it by, to ease our conscience so that we feel like we're pleasing God. Reading our Bible and going to church and praying and fellowshipping with one another and serving and being generous are things we should do, but not because of guilt or any attempt to merit God's favor. But to know God, to know Him. We, we read God's Word to know Him, to, to meet with Him, 
to grow in our love for him. That is why you are here this afternoon. You're here because you want to meet with God. We believe when we show up on a Sunday afternoon as God's family, as God's church, this corporate gathering, God is present. If you don't believe God is present, stay home. There's no point in being here. But God is present. And he's here to meet with us. And he's here to express his love for us. And he's here to teach us. And he's here to transform us. And that is why we're here. We don't do it out of some outward pressure like the scribes and Pharisees tried to put upon the people. We do it because we want to know God. This, that's a life of grace, brothers and sisters. It's a life of grace that Jesus right here is explaining and interpreting in this passage. And as the old hymns wonderfully say to us, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to his cross I cling. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Oh, Father, thank you for, for being the fulfillment of the word through your son, Jesus Christ. And that word not only transforming us, but drawing us near to love you more that we might be more like you. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us through your word to bring glory to your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.